Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today on the podcast, our guest is the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, Tom Perez. Tom is a relentless cheerleader for Democrats. We all know that. But we prime off the talking points here to talk about things like whether Joe Biden should apologize and whether Bernie Sanders is good for the Democratic Party, even though he isn't really a Democrat and why the party won't let Fox News sponsor a primary season debate for the Democrats. Tom Perez, next on It's All Political. Tom Perez, welcome to It's All Political. Joe, it's great to be with you. All right. So now when I told some people you're coming on, and these are Democrats, uh, they wanted me to say one thing to you. One request. Please stop with the goddamn fundraising emails. I mean, they get these all the time. How, what, um, how, what are they, I'm just curious, what is the hit ratio on that? The, the, the number that you sent out and the number that actually generate even a dollar, which is... Well, one of the things that I've learned in this, when people say, stop sending me the emails, I say, can you show them to me? And then it turns out that a substantial percentage are from many of the sister committees. Yes. And it's very easy to confuse them. Yes. Here's the reality. Uh, in order to take on Donald Trump and their fundraising machine, uh, we need help at the grassroots level. And last year was one of our best grassroots fundraising years ever. We raised roughly $78 million in our direct marketing in our grassroots, and the average online donation was $37. And 48%, 47 or 48% of those donors were given to the DNC for the first time. And that was very heartening because our job when I got to the DNC a little over two years ago, we needed to rebuild our infrastructure and also to rebuild the trust of the voters. And we've been working at a grassroots level to do exactly that. And you don't think money is not gonna be a problem for the 2020 candidate, is it? Well, hey, listen, Donald Trump is raising money hand over fist. The, the reckless tax cut bill they passed in when the Republicans had control of everything, was it was it was basically a pay-to-play bill. Mm-hmm. You, you look at the number of campaign donations in the month or two after that mm-hmm. bill was signed into law, and they were raking in money at large levels like a Hoover vacuum cleaner, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they continue to do that. And we, that's why we're working hard to make sure that we raise enough money to get our message out. In in the 2018 cycle, they outraised us. That is a dog bites man story yes. because they have more wealthy donors, but they were spending it to defend against uh, allegations against the president, went to his legal defense right. fund. Six, six they're, million went to legal moral, defense. Yeah. yeah, they're morally bankrupt. <laughs> and uh, we had enough to get our message out and to implement our game plan. And that's the key is to implement your game plan. And we won at scale in the 2018 cycle across the country. All right, let's talk about some some real stuff here. Let's talk about Joe Biden. Now, the other day I wrote about that uh, he still hasn't apologized for uh, allegedly inappropriately touching at least three women. The other day, Shauna Thomas, she's the founder of Ultraviolent. That's a women's uh, organization. She told me Biden still doesn't get it, and that's been the problem from the start. It's why he refuses to apologize. What he did today was prove that he doesn't get it and undermines every other statement he's made to date about listening and learning. Should he, should he apologize at this point, Tom? He takes these allegations very seriously, and I think the voters are going to listen to what he has said, and they are going to judge him on what he has said, and also judge him 
as they will every candidate on the entire body of their life's work, mm -hmm. uh, what they have done to further the causes that are what we are as a Democratic Party. Right. And, and that will be ultimately up to the voters. So should he apologize, though? Well, I, I, th I think if the vice president were here, he would say he has he has acknowledged that he needs to change his behavior. Mm -hmm. He has acknowledged that he is a very warm individual, and sometimes his warmth is misinterpreted. And so he needs to uh, reflect the realities of today's world. And I, I think that uh, he understands that very clearly. Mm -hmm. And again, uh, as we move forward, it will be up to the voters to, to make a judgment about, again, not only the vice president, but everybody running. We have a really deep bench, uh, Joe, uh, running for president. I, I've had the privilege of getting to know the vast majority of them. Uh, their values are, I believe, the values that command the respect of the vast majority of the American people. And I am proud to be a Democrat. All right. Uh, what's the lesson that the Democrats and all Americans really should take from the Me Too movement? Well, th that it's unacceptable to subjugate women, that it's unacceptable to uh, create a culture in the workplace that is uninviting uh, to women. And the thing that uh, makes me proud to be a Democrat is we're willing to have this conversation mm -hmm. and have a difficult conversation. You look at the Republicans and they're not even willing to have it. When, when they have issues come up, whether it's the president of the United States, who's an unindicted co-conspirator in a federal case involving the payment of hush money to silence a woman with whom he had an affair, an unindicted co-conspirator, the response of the Republican Party is to put their head in the sand. Mm. And you see that time and time again, Joe. Mm. And Democrats are not at all reluctant to have these conversations because we understand that when women succeed, America succeeds. Republicans want to put their head in the sand. And that's why when you look at the 2018 election, uh, we did very, very well among women because we're fighting for the issues they care about. So let's talk about the debates. We're, debates are going to be coming up in just a couple of months. And uh, already, now, correct me if I'm wrong here, already 11 by the standards, if, 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 the, uh, if, the, if we're judging today, 11 would qualify and perhaps several more eventually. Did they, to get into the debates, you have to have, you'd be polling at 1% or have 65,000 donors from 20 states. Did the DNC set the bar too low for this? I don't think so. I yeah. think the message of 2016 is that the voters should decide who the next nominee is, not the Democratic National Committee. And I took that feedback to heart. We need to return the power to the grassroots. That's why we made some dramatic changes to our nominating process, including dramatically limiting the power of superdelegates, because mm -hmm. I heard clearly from voters in California and elsewhere mm. that we shouldn't have people who have more power in this process than others. Mm. And so we did that. We also took steps, Joe, to increase the number, the, the, the people who will participate. We have six states that used to have caucuses in 2016 that are going to have primaries. I think that's a good thing. Why? Because more people participate. So we want to make sure that we have more participation. I want to make sure that every candidate gets a fair shake. We may end up with 15 or 16 uh, people running for president who meet our threshold. And by the way, we've never had a threshold that inclu included grassroots fundraising until this cycle. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good thing. And, and what it has done, Joe, both in effect, frankly, and in design, was it's incentivizing people to talk to voters 
who aren't just millionaires. Mm. It's incentivizing people uh, to, to get out there and engage voters. And so if we have 16 people who are eligible, we're going to do it two nights in a row in the end of June, uh, eight and eight. We're going to uh, do random assignments so there's no JV varsity. We'll do the same thing again <laughs> no kids in table. the end of July. No kids table. First debate's in Miami. The second debate will be in Detroit. And one thing I am certain, none of the Democratic candidates for president are going to be talking about hand size. They're going to be talking about health care. They're going to be debating the issues that people care about. Because when we talk about the, the economic health and moral imperative to make sure that people with pre-existing conditions can keep their coverage. One thing is clear. Democrats support keeping coverage for people with pre-existing conditions, and Republicans want to do away with it. There's no, there's no doubt about that. No. President, uh, this president has said, I, I want to go into court in Texas. I want them to do away, not, with, not simply with part of the Affordable Care Act, but with the entirety of the Affordable Care Act. So if anybody's listening has a 22 or a 23 or a 24-year-old living at home, sleeping on their couch, whatever <laughs> they're sleeping, Joe, and they, they've got health care because of the Affordable Care Act, that's at risk. Now, some of the presidential candidates have said they won't accept corporate PAC money. The party is not banned accepting corporate PAC money. They're gonna, they're thinking, you're thinking about it right now. You're, you're studying it. Why not? Why not? They, they, from what I understand... DNC only accepted 144000 in corporate PAC money in 2018 out of the $175 million you raised. Why not just ban it? Well, that's going to be a, that's a conversation we've undertaken. We've already taken aggressive steps, and you're correct that uh, the, the money that we've taken from corporate PACs is a very, Depends. very small percentage yeah. of what we take. And what we're doing now, and, and we've, we've been very clear about uh, not taking money from tobacco and, and other industries um, of that nature. And, and what we've decided to do as a DNC is to make sure we have this conversation during the nomination so that when we get to the uh, convention floor and we build a platform, we can do that. One of the lessons I learned from 2016 is you don't change the rules in the middle of the campaign cycle. Yes. There was some real understandable angst that it seemed like rules were being changed that would impact certain candidates in 2016. So the rules were set forth in that platform. And what we're doing now, uh, we have, again, as you correctly point out, Joe, taken aggressive steps uh, that have limited the amount of uh, corporate PAC money we take. And by the way, it's all reported. Mm -hmm. And we're going to continue to have that conversation and go into the 2020 cycle uh, next summer, uh, prepared to have a a conversation about so this what will the be platform. decided by the time you you uh, you pick a nominee. Correct? This will be decided at the time of the convention. At the convention, correct. Okay. Speaking of one of the people who was whose feelings were hurt by that was is Bernie Sanders. Do you th I mean, do you think Bernie Sanders is a Democrat? I mean, no, he he affirmed that he would run as a Democrat, but he also registered as an independent for his Senate run. Do you, I mean, do you think of him as a Democrat? Well, when I think about the issues that Democrats are fighting for, we believe that health care is a right for all and not a privilege for a few. We believe that if you work a full-time job, you ought to be able to live a stress-free life. We believe that education is the great equalizer, and we ought to make sure that uh, your socioeconomic status doesn't hinder your ability to get the education that you need. Uh, those are some of the basic premises of the Democratic Party. We believe that we are a nation of laws and a nation of immigrants. We believe in a woman's right to choose. And these are issues that Senator Sanders has fought for and 
and uh, those are the stand those are key standards and and values, frankly, yeah. that the Democratic Party has fought for. So he, and so I'm I welcome him into this race. We've we set forth uh, criteria for people to enter the race. He has abided by that, and I welcome him. And we're going to make sure, and we've done this from day one, that everybody is treated fairly. And you, uh, Hillary Clinton, in her book, of course, What Happened, uh, famously said that uh, Sanders, quote, did lasting damage to her candidacy, and that he never wanted a Democrat to win. She says, Hillary speaking, he didn't get into the race to make sure a Democrat won the White House, but he got in to dem- disrupt the Democratic Party. Do you think do you agree with her in that? Well, again, I, I, I think we're, what I'm focused on, uh, Joe, is the future. But you know, do you think we, he's we good for the party? Out, do you think he's good for the party, we, Bernie? He's fighting for issues that are at the center of what it's like to be a Democrat and what it means to be a Democrat. And again, I welcome him into the race. We had a unity reform commission in the aftermath of the 2016 election mm-hmm. that built a big table. We had an inclusive conversation. And we undertook, and by the way, we undertook with virtual unanimity by the end of our process of engagement, you couldn't tell who had supported Senator Sanders and who had supported Secretary Clinton mm. uh, because we were all focused on the future. And the future of our party is a future of inclusion because Democrats believe that uh, you know we are a nation that should be focused on the many, not the few. Mm. And, and that's what the work of the Democratic Party is. That's what everyone running for president on the Democratic side is focused on. And, and that's why... Again, I'm proud to be a Democrat. And uh, Bernie said, uh, tell you, Speaker Bernie, he said uh, he's going to be in a Fox News forum, uh, or town hall, I should say. And um, he said, when I go on Fox, what I will say is, look, many of you who voted for Donald Trump, many of you voted for Donald Trump, but he lied to you. He told you he's going to provide health care for everybody, and his policies are to throw 30 million people off health insurance as they have it. And he says, you know, when he's asked why he's going on Fox, he said, to simply say that we're not going to talk to millions of people who watch that network, I don't think is smart. But you guys have are banned Fox from hosting any of the of the primary debates. Um, and you you said, uh, Chairman Perez, uh, recent reporting in the New York Times, uh, I'm sorry, in the New Yorker, on the inappropriate relationship between President Trump, his administration, and Fox News has led me to conclude that the network is not in a position to host a fair and neutral debate for our candidates. Therefore, Fox News will not serve as a media partner for the 2020 primary, Democratic primary debates. Do you feel like you're not speaking to that part of the country by, by doing that? I go on Fox News uh, with regularity. So mm-hmm. do other Democrats, so do other people at the DNC. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to distinguish going on Fox News and talking to their audience, which I do have done and will continue to do. And we don't uh, discourage any candidate from doing the same. Mm-hmm. Our rules don't bar it. Right, right. Uh, we encourage people. That's a far cry from hosting debates. And the debates are a unique opportunity for Democrats to get together and talk about our values. And what has become clear over the course of not just the New Yorker piece, but many things before and after the New Yorker piece, is that they're not playing it straight. Mm. I have respect for Chris Wallace and Brett Baer, but people above their pay grade are doing a disservice to our democracy and a disservice to objective journalism by putting their thumb on the scale. And what you're asking me, Joe, in effect, is we just got to trust that we're going to have one of the 12 most important moments in our debate schedule, and let's trust it to 
the Murdochs or their uh, ideological partners uh, to run a fair debate. And again, they have proven that they are effectively the task news agency. And that is a real problem. But wouldn't that be and a way I have to confidence. test the candidates? I mean, that's, they're going to have to deal with this when they go to Washington, when they become the president. Uh, shouldn't that be a test for them? Well, again, uh, I welcome I, – I go on Fox News. Mm-hmm. I was on uh, Chris Wallace a few weeks back. I, I suspect I'll go back on in the near future. I continue to engage with other people on the journalism side. I won't go on Sean Hannity and all of their right. advocacy journalism side. But the thing about it is – they have pierced what is supposed to be the line between one and the other. You asked me before about the Me Too movement. They've got some major problems at Fox News. You're, you're speaking of their history of, uh, of people being harassed at the network. And, and I mean, you see what's, what has been said and what hasn't been done. And I, I, you're, I, you're, in effect, asking us, well, we should reward that. And, and the thing about it is, people, you know, so many people who watch Fox News... They're smart, educated uh, consumers, and Fox News doesn't need to put their thumb on the scale, right. disseminate the news, and let the listeners decide for right. themselves. 37% of their viewers are independents. And I, I, I understand that. 18% are, are your fellow Democrats. That's, that's yeah. why I go on Fox yeah. News, and, and that's why it's so unconscionable. And it's, I, I would never be able to uh, work at Fox News because this notion, well, that's not me... That's the other side of the house that's engaging in utter lies and efforts to undermine our democracy, a a radical disregard for the truth. Well, that's not me, so that's okay. Hmm. Uh, That's not okay, Joe. And and that is, and they're getting an FCC license uh, Hmm. to, to broadcast. And so I, as DNC chair, I think I have a responsibility to make sure that I have 100% confidence that debates are going to be on the up and up. The uh, DCCC, which is the campaign arm of House Democrats, mm-hmm. and we add is not an arm of you guys. You're not uh, connected to the um, – the DNC is not related to the DCCC, if we get, get deep into our alphabet soup here. Uh, has a new policy. They're going to blacklist consultants who work with candidates who challenge incumbents. And among the, the Democrats who's accept, upset about this is our own uh, Silicon Valley congressman and former – it's all political guest, Ro Khanna. Ro said, let's be clear. This is Ro talking. Uh, if this policy remains in place, it means it will not allow a new Ayanna Presley's or new Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's to emerge. It is simply wrong. Amy Allison, who's doing a, a forum, uh, her, she, the people organization, is holding a candidate forum in April, agreed. And she said this policy hurts candidates who are women of color. Is this policy wrong? I'll leave that for the DCCC <laughs> to decide. We, we you, are, you, as you, you correctly, about this? you know what, uh, I have a job to do, yeah. and we don't get involved as a general matter in primaries yeah. because uh, our job is to build the infrastructure so that whoever comes out of a primary can hit the ground running. Yeah. That's the job of the DNC. You don't and want to choose among your children. is to make sure that that infrastructure is in place and to make sure that we continue uh, to talk about our values as a party, our, the, the fact that we are the party fighting for health care. We're the party fighting for an America that works for everyone. And the DSCC, the DCCC, the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, which works with state 
legislative candidates, a very important and, and very effective uh, campaign committee, they have a slightly different role. And so I respect what they have to do, and I, I leave it to them to make the decisions on what they believe is in the best interest of their candidates. Your former boss, because you were labor secretary, uh, uh, President Obama said, one of the things I said this over the weekend, one of the things I worry about sometimes among progressives in the United States, and maybe it's true here, he was in Berlin over the weekend, is a certain kind of rigidity where we say, oh, I'm sorry, this is how it's going to be. And then we start sometimes create what's called a circular firing squad where you start shouting at your allies because one of them is, is straying from purity on the issues. And when that happens, typically the overall effort and movement weakens. Do you share the president's concern about this? Because you have so many candidates and there's going to be some infighting. Are you concerned about the circular firing squad potential based on like an ideological purity test? Well, when I look at the 2018 campaign, we had historic success in governor's races, uh, in house races, in other state house races. We were able to control the bleed in the Senate races in a historically challenging uh, map. And we did it because we had a unity of purpose. And we, we understood, and this is something I learned, Joe, from my former boss, Ted Kennedy, one must never conflate unity and unanimity. Uh, what unites us as Democrats far outweighs what our differences are. Mm -hmm. And we won in 2018 because we recognized this. We were fighting, healthcare was the number one issue on the ballot. We were fighting for an America in which if you had a pre-existing condition, you could keep your health care coverage. We're, having a, we're going to have a spirited debate in the 2020 primary about the fact that health care is a right for all and not a privilege for a few. Every single candidate for president understands that you should have coverage if you have a pre-existing condition. And we're going to have a debate. We, thanks to Democrats, by the way, uh, dating back to Medicare... We are 90% of the way to universal health coverage. Mm. And now we're going to have a debate about whether how we get from 90% to 100. And it'll be a spirited debate. But what people, I think, running for president recognize is that the Republicans want to move the ball backward. Every single candidate for the Democratic nomination for president is trying to get from 90% to 100. And there are multiple ways to get there. And you think that what would be will, the, the defining issue, healthcare? Do you think it would well, be the healthcare, defining issue? Healthcare for, was the number one issue in 2018. I think it's going to be the number one issue in 2020. And and the reason why Donald Trump talked about caravans ad nauseum was because he was trying to distract voters from the matter at hand, which is healthcare. He's trying to cut it, and Democrats are trying to save it. If you elect Donald Trump again in 2020, he's going to cut Medicare. He's going to cut Medicaid. Don't ask me. Read the videotape from Mitch McConnell and 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 so many others, and yeah. they're going to go after your health care. They've already gone after it, and and that is why I think when we have this unity of purpose, when we understand all Democrats believe that climate change is real, and we need to take bold, prompt, aggressive action. Republicans don't even believe the science, mm. and so again, the key is to focus on the unity of values that we have as Democrats and to focus on that unity of purpose because the differences in our values, the differences in our priorities between Democrats, every Democrat running for president, and Republicans are night and day. And I think our values and our the things we're fighting for, we have everyone's back. We're, we're trying to help people uh, 
he claimed in 2016 that he had your back, that is the current president. Yes. And what we've learned over the last two years and change is he actually has a knife in your back. And he's <laughs> twisting it every week. Last week, health care. Uh, now you see, again, the chaos at the border uh, and their desire. Uh, they've, they've, everybody's enacting something at the Department of Homeland Security because they fired everybody. Yeah. And that's not making America safer, right. Joe. Yeah. That, that is, that's chaos. And rather than understanding and addressing the root causes that bring people from Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador to the United States, rather than understanding those root causes, he threatens to cut foreign policy aid. That's making matters worse. Right. Rather than putting more asylum officers down at the border to adjudicate cases, he said the other day, I think we should get rid of all the judges. Everything he does makes matters worse. And it's because his North Star is not doing the right thing. His North Star is creating red meat for a campaign-style rally. Right. And that is a warped set of priorities. The I have to ask you this question. As a Californian, uh, what percentage of the Democratic Party is now people of color? Is it 40% or, or roughly? Well, it's, it's getting it's, larger. It's, and yeah. uh, I don't have the precise yeah. uh, figure, Some, but it's so. somewhere in that vicinity. And yeah. we have, uh, I mean, California today yeah. is America tomorrow. Yeah. And that's uh, what... Demographically. And we have, but, but demographics, uh, Joe, when people say demographics are destiny, uh, for me, that's frankly fingernails on chalkboard. Really? Demographics are only destiny if we are out there organizing in every community, taking no community for, val for granted, and leading with our values. We are fighting for immigration reform. We yeah. are fighting to make sure zip code never determines destiny. And, and that is how we win. If demographics were destiny, Texas would be blue. Yes. But so are you concerned about, I mean, California just drives people nuts, um, that the, the first two states, very prominent, very powerful, are Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, largely lily white states, 90 plus percent white. Do you, do you see that ever changing? Well, and isn't that, isn't that bad for the Democratic Party? Because you, you get a sort of a warped view of America. It's already changing. Because on the day that people are voting in Iowa, they'll be voting in California. This is true. Uh, on the day that people are voting in Iowa, they'll be voting early in Nevada. And with the changes that we've made in our process, moving the California and Texas primaries up to Super Tuesday. Super Tuesday is one month after the Iowa caucus. Yeah. So that is, I think, a real opportunity to make sure that voters that reflect the broad quilt of this wonderful nation have an opportunity to weigh in earlier. And it's going to put a premium on candidates who can uh, speak to the values, hopes, and dreams of, of every resident across every zip code of this great country. Can I just, uh, I have to tell you, uh, Chairman, before I let you go, that you, I, you lost a bet because my friend Matt said, Tom Perez is going to say, use the phrase, embarrassment of riches within the first six minutes of the thing to, to describe the democratic field. But you did not. And I said, I'm going to take the over on that. And but so you didn't say embarrassment of riches. You, so I can you, say it now. No, no, no. You can say it. You can say it now. <laughs> well, we do have a deep field. I mean, people. You know, Joe. You can I, say it I, now. And I, I because hear, I've won my beer. So I, I do hear from people from time to time. How do you how do you deal with yeah. such a large field? And I think it's a great challenge to have yeah. because again, I've had the privilege of working with the vast majority of 
yeah, these you said, candidates. What and, keeps you up they're... at night, though? At this point, this was the last time. I said, what, what what keeps you up at night? What what you know? As you're thinking, oh my God, what what am I going to do about this? What am, what are what is your biggest concern? Oh, I'll, I'll tell you what keeps me up every night, and it's kept me up every night since January 21st. It's the suffering of the American people. It it, it when you uh, put children in cages at at the border, that harkens back to the era of slavery to the similar mistreatment of Native Americans. When you pass a reckless tax cut that is a promissory note on my children, our children, our, our grandchildren, uh, that keeps me up at night. When we have a secretary of education who doesn't believe in public education, that keeps me up at night. As the proud father of three kids who went through the public school systems where I live. When we have a Supreme Court that seems poised to want to take on Roe v. Wade, has already uh, tried to put a fork in the labor movement in the Janus decision, that keeps me up at night. Mm. And the reason I ran for this job and the reason I do this job is because when you win elections at scale, you help people at scale. And when you lose elections at scale, as we did as Democrats, not just 2016 presidential, but so many, before, yeah. so many state, local, and other federal races in the run-up, we lose the ability to help people at scale. And I am very proud of what we've accomplished to date. 2018 was a red-letter year for Democrats, up and down the ticket. We are a 50-state party again. We're competing everywhere. We're leading with our values everywhere. We're winning everywhere. And we've got to take this to scale because it's not simply all those issues I've mentioned that are on the ballot. I firmly believe that democracy as we know it, Joe, is on the ballot. Mm -hmm. And that is why we must never allow ourselves to conflate unity with unanimity. Republicans have a way of, you know, that Republicans fall in line, and some argue Democrats have to fall in love. Yes. And <laughs> we have to understand that idealism and pragmatism cannot be ever mutually exclusive. I learned that from Ted Kennedy. He has a museum of accomplishments because he was a bold leader. Uh, he was a dreamer and a doer. Uh, America needs a dreamer and a doer. A president with the values that reflect our values of inclusion and opportunity for everyone and someone who can bring us together. And we've got a bumper crop of candidates. And my job is twofold and it's straightforward. Not to mention, it's not easy, but it's twofold and it's straightforward. Number one, to make sure the process is fair to everyone. Fair in fact and fair in perception. And number two, to make sure we build that infrastructure, organizers, technology, voter protection, millennial engagement, so that the nominee can sprint across the starting gate in July of next year and through the fall and to victory in November of 2020. That's my job. And I am focused like a laser on it every single day. All right. I will see you in Milwaukee, if not sooner. Cameron Perez, thank you so much for being on the It's a pleasure political. to be with you, Joe. All right. I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank Chairman Tom Perez for coming to San Francisco to be on the podcast. I'd like to thank Libby Coleman for expertly producing today's podcast. I'd like to thank my friend Matt in advance for paying off on this bed of a beer. And remember, whether you're sick of Tom Perez's emails or not, it's all political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle podcast network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. 
Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks. <laughs>